The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts. And I'm Lara Prendergast. And today we are delighted to welcome to Table Talk Tara Wigley. Tara is the in-house writer of Team Ottolenghi, where she's led on the writing of six books. She also has a weekly column in The Guardian and a monthly column in The New York Times, which she co-writes with Yotam Ottolenghi. Her first solo book, How to Butter Toast, came out in September and is described as the antidote to cookbook overload, as it doesn't actually contain any recipes. Oh, and it's completely written in verse. Tara, welcome to Table Talk. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I trust we'll be speaking in Roman couplets for the whole uh, whole okay. All the way through, yes. <laughs> Always. <laughs> like all the other podcasts that we do. <laughs> Tara, let's start where we always start, which is right at the beginning. What are your earliest memories of food? My earliest memories of food, I've always just loved eating. So there's always just been a lot of food. Um the dish that stands out from childhood is dad's egg in the cup on a Sunday night. And it seems slightly unfair to talk about it because it's kind of the one meal that he made compared to sort of mum cooking every day. But that is the memory of of the kind of soft boiled egg. And then he'd do soldiers, which he'd chop up into um, little squares and then pile it into a warm glass. Uh, sometimes there was bacon or sometimes there wasn't. And um, that was kind of Sunday night egg in the cup. But in terms of my own kind of relationship with food and making it, it was the tea that I used to make coming home from school and I used to just have this kind of ginormous plate of kind of thick granary bread with peanut butter and mum's homemade jam and then there'd just be you know sort of carrot cake and what we called hammer and chisel which was a kind of chocolate fridge cake and looking back on it now it was a kind of I cannot imagine my kids now coming in from school and eating that plate of food and then an hour later seeming to have a sort of normal family supper but yeah that tea coming in from school and I think part of it is the sort of just the freedom of being able to kind of make your own plate was always kind of a big theme and passion of mine. So yeah, peanut butter sandwiches and dad's egg in the cup. And were mealtimes themselves important to your family growing up? Yeah, they were. It was kind of 80s classic, lots of kind of pork fillets, mum kind of bashing her pork down and with sort of breadcrumbs and and it was all pretty straightforward. I don't think mum was cooking from cookbooks and so yeah it was kind of me and two brothers and there was nothing hugely sort of imaginative I don't think mum would mind me saying I remember when we first got our first sort of pot of sun-dried tomatoes and then we had this chicken where we put the sun-dried tomatoes and pesto in it and kind of rolled the chicken around and then sliced it and that felt kind of super fancy that would have been kind of late 80s but yeah always kind of I mean food and eating mum was great little sort of picnics if ever we went to which in part was play kick the can, there'd be sort of some picnic that seemed to appear by magic, which I now realise never appears by magic, but it seemed to as a child. So yeah, always lots of and food around. Tara, when did you start to discover an interest in, in food and, and cooking yourself? Did your mother teach you or when did that begin? Uh, when did it begin? It didn't actually begin until quite late. Me and one of my brothers in particular were always huge eaters. So it's definitely sort of eating that came first and a love of that. And I didn't really get into cooking until 
actually I was at university that I discovered that magic of kind of the sort of truism that if you can read, you can cook and that I'd sort of follow a recipe and then be sort of slightly kind of stunned that I could make a sort of four cheese heavy Delia Smith lasagna or, you know, I remember so clearly making my first Oslengi dish when I had a friends around for a birthday and we all sort of sat on the floor with this great big bed sheet laid out on the floor as though it was a tablecloth. And I made this salad that was buckwheat noodles with cubes of fried aubergine and fresh cubes of mango and tons of herbs. And I just never, ever made this sort of thing before, but just kind of religiously followed it. And as with all good Otterlingi recipes, as we all know, if you follow them, they do actually work. And <laughs> I was kind of stunned. So yeah, it wasn't until, until university that I really got into food and cooking and hosting and that sort of delight of feeding buddies. And just before we move on to Otolenghi and, and your working relationship with him, what about school food, just to take you back slightly? Do you have happy memories of school food? Um, I was thinking about it this morning. <laughs> and in primary school, it was definitely that sort of very particular smell of food that is not actually great. And, and, we, and you had that kind of ice cream scoop that could get the the mashed potato out and then it would sort of click between and you get this perfect scoop of mashed potato on your plate. So that's my memory, as well as racing to finish this slightly warm bottle of milk in first morning break with my friend Christo, because it was so horrible. So early school food was pretty functional. But then when I went to sick form, I was suddenly blown away by the existence of like a kind of salad bar. And you could actually, again, it goes back to that sort of autonomy of tea time that actually having that choice to choose a jacket potato and put what you wanted in it. And then there was little kind of crackers with sort of cheese and in. Uh, and so, yeah, at sick form, I was kind of blown away by choice and being able to actually sort of choose what you want rather than having this sort of ice cream scooped shape lump of mashed potato on my plate. And you'd planned to study English at university. I did study English at university. <laughs> right, okay. So I planned to go to university. I did go to university. And then I did a master's in publishing studies. And then I was in publishing for the best part of a decade as a kind of junior editor and assistant to a literary agent at an agency. So now looking back, that was kind of super useful to have had that decade kind of with words and writing. And then we were abroad for a couple of years. So that was a kind of enforced break just to kind of take a step back and then we had twins and then at that point well in fact when they were 18 months old I had this sort of Damascene conversion and realized that what I needed to be doing was taking these little twins and this great big dog that we'd picked up in Sarajevo where we'd been living off to cookery school in Ireland for three months slightly thinking that everyone else would be taking their kind of families and kids and lives with them and obviously turned up and everyone was completely footloose and fancy free. Um, <laughs> but in Ireland... How did you juggle that? In, well, it can only work and it only makes sense if you go to Ballymaloo where you can turn up with two 18-month-olds who've just learned to walk. Oh, actually, no, they'd learned to walk a bit before then. And a dog and it just sort of somehow works. I don't think I even had childcare sorted out until I got there and then someone knew someone in somewhere in Ballycotton who would kind of mind them for, you know, kind of 10 euros a day. And I went to this lovely young mum and she had this massive great fish tank. And I think my twins just spent three months looking at these fish going around. And I don't know if like having twins just kind of made me feel a bit less anxious about just kind of leaving them in front of this fish tank for three months. I mean, I did pick them up at five o'clock. I didn't leave them there for three months. <laughs> but it was, it was one of those things that you look back on and you, and you sort of wonder how you did it. 
because also my husband was at home and he, you know, it's quite a wrench for him not having his new little kind of babies around. And it was the time where there was this ash cloud over Europe. So every time he came to visit me in Ballymaloo, he'd spend about five days getting home on the ferry because <laughs> the planes weren't going. But it kind of worked. And it was really interesting at Ballymaloo because you had these kind of younger people who just left school where the stakes just felt a bit lower and they were just sort of doing it as one of many strings to their bow. And then you had people at the other end who had always wanted to go to cookery school but were doing it very much as a hobby sort of in their 60s. And then you had this really kind of slightly desperate, hungry lot in the middle who were career changers in their sort of late 30s, 40s, who were just so kind of definitely, definitely front row students kind of taking <laughs> taking every note. But it was incredible, as I'm sure anyone who's been to Ballymaloo knows. What was the cookery learning experience like there? Uh, it was amazing. I mean, it's such a privilege. It's it's a, it's a pricey thing to do for three months. So the stakes feel really high. And yet when you get there, you're just in this absolute haven of just incredible produce and you sit around in the afternoon and you watch a demo so Rory and Darina and Rachel Allen and all their amazing staff demoing all the food you're then going to cook the next day in the kitchen so you kind of watch this three-hour demo as they are sort of watching the finest cooking and then you you go and taste it all so that you know what you're aiming for and then the next day you go into the kitchen with your chef's whites on and your check trousers, kind of feeling like a complete imposter. And then you try and recreate what you've seen and that just rolls on and on for three months. And it's, you know, people definitely drink the Kool-Aid once they get there. And I used to have to go to Tesco's once a week just to get a reality check to kind of like remind myself this wasn't actually my life because it's such a kind of idyll and haven. And you sort of live in a world where people can just go down to the sea to get the salty water that's the perfect saltiness to cook your perfect pasta and stuff. So it's amazing. And the whole force of the kind of Darina Allen spirit is very strong and makes people really open to all sorts of ideas. And it's it's quite good to go there without a real plan about knowing kind of what's going to come at the end of it. And Tara, tell us about how you first came into contact with Yotam Motlengi. So at Ballymaloo, Darina just makes out that it's a completely normal thing just to kind of email your heroes and check in and see if they want to meet or if they've got any opportunities for you. So I sort of merrily emailed Yotam from Ballymaloo because he was my complete kind of desert island sort of hero chef. And that was the time when he was opening the restaurant Noppy. So he sort of said to, I don't think it was him, said to sort of come in for an interview at the Noppy restaurant. And I had a lovely chat with Sarit Packer, who's now Honey & Co. And she, I'd actually been working in restaurants for about six months by the point of this interview and beginning to think that working in restaurants was not really tenable for sort of a young mum where just, just the logistics of life and the hours are just really incompatible. So I've been trying to make it work for about six months and then Sarit Packer was the one who really crystallised for me the impossibility of what I was trying to do at this stage in life. And so she kind of sent me on my way just saying, maybe just sort of think about doing something a bit more practical and daytime you know, with food. So I was then kind of filling up people's fridges and freezers at home for a few weeks, slightly thinking kind of, oh, is this gamble going to pay off with like career change and having paid for cookery school and stuff. And then I got a phone call one day from someone that I thought was my husband pretending to be Yotam because he was my complete kind of desert island, sort of, well, as I've said, my hero. And he said, hi, it's Yotam Masalengi. I've heard that you're, you've got this sort of background in publishing and writing and editing and words, but you're also a keen home cook, but you're not a pro chef and 
you, you know, you sound exactly like the person I'm looking for because he was looking for someone who had more experience of home cooking than restaurant cooking because they're such different things, but who could also kind of string a sentence together and shape a narrative. So at the point where I was feeling like I was slightly kind of falling between these two worlds, he was looking for someone exactly like me who was kind of straddling these two worlds. So it was just really super lucky. But I had this whole conversation, honestly thinking it was Chris, my husband, and then I phoned Chris back saying kind of, was that you playing a really horrible trick? And it wasn't. And then I turned up at your time's <laughs> house about three days later, still slightly thinking kind of who's going to open the door. And it was him. And then I sort of walked in. And then the most nerve wracking part of that day was that he asked me to drive his electric car to Westfield to buy all the ingredients from Waitrose. <laughs> and I was so nervous because I definitely never Real driven test. an electric car. <laughs> yeah, literally a road test. So yeah, so that was just kind of helping him on the the Guardian columns. And we was it was just in his flat at the time in this tiny little kitchen. And then I'd do all the kind of mise en place. And, and then when it was ready to put the dish together, he would spring up from his kind of massive, great sort of kitchen table desk. And then we would sort of do three recipes in the morning and then I'd cycle home and type up the notes. And those recipes then became plenty more. And then sort of the books have followed and the whole job has evolved and the whole team has got bigger and more organised in a proper test kitchen since then. So, yeah, that was kind of 12 years ago. And do you have a favourite of the books you've worked on with him? Do you have a favourite child? <laughs> <laughs> I've only got one, so it's quite easy. <laughs> well, there's lots of reasons I love Ossilingi books. And one is that they're all so different. And I love, it is a bit like sort of children looking back and just, you make your mistakes with the first one. <laughs> but no, there are no no mistakes. But And so they're all, all so different. Simple was super exciting because it felt like a real challenge because for a lot of people, the word Ottolenghi simple was a kind of oxymoron and it was really challenging and exciting, not only kind of working out how we did that, but just so delivering on it that it, it was a real kind of phenomena. And then Falestine, the book I did with Sammy Tamimi, was incredibly, I'm really, really proud of that book because it was a real challenge writing a book about Palestinian food with all the kind of questions about who gets to tell stories and who gets to write and me being kind of crippled by that initially but then actually realizing that my voice and my questions and my ignorance were actually really useful because the readers that we wanted to kind of bring in with the book were people like me who were scared to ask questions for fear of asking the wrong question or offending and actually a recipe book is such a safe way in for people to kind of read about people and place and food and link it with history and identity. So I sort of took my nerves and anxiety and actually realised they were sort of a bit of a superpower for the book, along with Sammy's, obviously, incredible experience and history and story. So yeah, all the books are really, really different. And what do you think is the secret to an Ottolenghi recipe? I mean, everyone kind of knows, can probably picture what an Ottolenghi recipe sort of looks like once it's made. What What's the secret to what he and, and you are both doing? Uh, feta. No, I, I think easy. I think the secret to asking your recipe is very prosaic, and I think it's that they work. People can say they're too long or too complicated or too whatever, even though brackets you can leave out some ingredients and it'll still work. But I do think the fact that they work is a really big thing. I also think for people, I'm slightly projecting my own cooking experience, but. I think the fact that you can make a lot of the dishes in advance of kind of buddies arriving or family, I think also makes it a really kind of calming, fun thing to make because often you can make it hours or even the day before 
And then, you know, you can sort of play, plating up and plattering and then like, ta-da, aren't I amazing? And so it's that sort of not the kind of, not having to like serve the minute something sort of hot and on a plate. So I think as a kind of, as a way of eating, I think it's really, really suited. Then there's all the kind of obvious stuff about how beautiful it is and delicious. And uh, yeah, back to feta. If in doubt, sprinkle on and lemon. And, it's... <laughs> and again, all the books are really, really different. So I quite sort of like meeting someone and sort of guessing which is their book, you know, whether they're Slaver or whether they're Simple or whether they're Jerusalem or whether they're Plenty or Plenty More. You know, it's it's um because they're all sort of slightly different. Like horoscopes. Like horoscopes. Yeah, exactly. It shouldn't be are you Capricorn. It's like, are you, are you flavor or are you You're a Gemini you like sweets. Yeah. <laughs> On the dating profile, it should definitely be, what is your Ottoman book? <laughs> What's your Ottoman recipe? And Tara, tell us about your book. I mean, it sounds very different to the Ottoman books. How did you conceive of it? It started in lockdown when I was trying to make pancakes for the kids. And I was really stunned that I couldn't just kind of know what the recipe for pancakes was it just seemed like such a simple thing and I'm someone who's written a book called simple and I'm really knowledgeable about food and cooking and then I started sort of looking up online kind of what the ratios are and there was so much different information and I was so confused and overwhelmed by this thing of actually how complicated can it be and then one of my kids looked up something and they're like oh mum it's just one two three you just have 100 grams of flour two eggs 300 mils of milk boom done and it was just so simple and we did it we didn't even follow a recipe we just one two three and then we made these brilliant pancakes and I was just really struck by this sort of paradox that there's just so much information out there that actually when it comes to doing something because there's so many little variables you can actually get really confused and forget that things are actually a lot simpler than they are and I think that's particularly the case the fewer ingredients there are in a dish so you know same if you're trying to roast a chicken or boil an egg or kind of make a tomato sauce you know there's so many variables and yet it doesn't really matter because if you just make it and taste it and if you think it's delicious then that's the way it should be so I wanted to write a book that kind of reassured people that there's lots of different ways to do things and from that point to then be liberated just to kind of crack on and put the oven on and put the chicken in and apply some fat and it doesn't matter if it's butter or oil and so yeah there's there's about 30 different rhymes all of these different things about how to do these very very basic things like how to make a cup of tea or how to make a martini or how to butter toast or how to poach an egg and I think you know it's something like a poached egg. Can you give us an example of one? What's your rhyme for how to make a cup of tea? How to make a cup of tea? Well, that'll take about three minutes to read. <laughs> um, so a cup of tea, you'd have the variables. I'll read the first paragraph. Um, how to make a cup of tea. Who would have thought that it could be a simple cup of tea that would incite such strength of feeling and controversy that this simplest of all questions asking, how do you take yours, can let loose such a big hot stream of do and don't tea bores. So then we go into all the variables. So there's kind of milk in first or water in first or are you cup or mug or steep or stew <laughs> or builders or artisan. And then, you know, the conclusion of all these rhymes is kind of, it's meant to be fun. It's meant to be delicious. There are lots of different ways of doing things and like, it's all okay. So it's a kind of a bit of a rallying cry just to kind of get back and have fun and not take it all too seriously because cookbooks you know I know that words matter and cookbooks 
often not even just about the recipes. They're about a lot more than that. There's a whole other story going on. But I think what's stopping some people get into the kitchen or doing things like poaching an egg or flipping a steak is kind of fear as I want to kind of just shake away that fear and just get everyone back in and sort of move beyond the kind of right and wrong. And did you write verse before this book or was it a new foray <laughs> why before did you I, were writing? Why did I crowbar into verse? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I have, I have always. As kids, we used to, me and my brothers used to do what we called raps where two of us would kind of take the beat and then the other one, if ever there was like a granny that had a sort of birthday or a competition on holiday that we needed to kind of like deliver something, we would do our rap. And if ever I wanted to kind of make sense of something, I will sort of pin it down in a kind of rhyming couplet form. But it's quite interesting. I don't know if I sort of overthink it, but because I was thinking about, you know, my relationship with Yotam and writing and as a kind of writing collaborator, kind of I've honed my craft almost kind of slightly hiding behind him. And that's been a real gift and freedom for me to hone my craft because then you don't need to worry about your own name being kind of exposed. But there's part of me that thinks, am I still sort of doing that with rhyme? You know, you sort of, is it a way to legitimise and justify kind of like what I have to say about (laughs) how to roast a chicken? But it's also fun. And and I'm loving that people are reading it now and remembering the rhymes, remembering little things and kind of it's making them laugh. And if that's going to help something stick about a poached egg or a boiled egg or a martini, then that's great. And how can you be intimidated by a recipe that's written in poetry? I mean, it's such a straightforward concept, but, you know, it's I absolutely love it. And I love the book itself. I think it's wonderful. Was it a hard sell or did the industry get it immediately? (laughs) Well, (laughs) was it a hard sell? I mean, it is a hard sell because it's a book full of recipes without any recipes in it. I also don't like the word poetry because that makes me feel a bit kind of <laughs> nervous. So it's, the kids are like, okay, we can't call you a chef. We've got to call you a cook. It's not poetry. We've got to call them rhymes. It's not. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I go into bookshops now and I kind of cringe if it's in the poetry section. You know, clearly it's meant to be Tillside for everyone to buy for Christmas. But um, <laughs> but it's like, it's absolutely not meant to be in the poetry section because that just feels kind of lofty and serious in a way that the whole book and the package and the amazing illustrations are just it's just meant to be kind of fun rhymes so yeah I think for any book that comes to market there's a lot of no's along the way but then it's just also super great meeting all the yes people along the way but it was also interesting doing books for 10 years as part of kind of team Osalengi where every door slightly opens and you kind of all cartwheel through together and then obviously it's different when it's you by yourself, slightly kind of knocking on doors. It's just a very different thing. It's fine until I go into a bookshop and then you get a kind of existential crisis about how many books are out there. And and of course, it's fascinating that you say, you know, is it something you're hiding behind? Because it feels so definitively different from anything else and therefore so kind of distinctively you that it's just, I think it's a really charming read. I absolutely love it. When you are cooking at home and cooking, do you cook from cookbooks? Are you a cookbook fiend or are you... How do you play it in the kitchen? It's a bit boring to say, but I'm a bit of an Ossie clone. If I kind of, I read cookbooks voraciously, but I rarely, or even if I plan to, I rarely actually cook other people's recipes. So I am the kind of biggest Ossie kind of sort of home cook and fan. So yeah, I do follow. And then, you know, like a lot of people, I've got my kind of, whatever it is, 15, 20 kind of heavy rotation recipes that I now would not be following a recipe for. What do you cook the most? I cook a lot from Palestine. There's some really great family dishes. Um, There's a dish called chicken masakan, which I do a lot 
where you can marinate your pieces of chicken in simple kind of spices of cumin and allspice and cinnamon. And then the killer thing about the dish is these red onions that you finely slice and then you sweat them down for a long time so they're super soft. And then you add a ton of sumac, which is the really spicy, red, tangy spice and cumin. And then you layer up the cooked chicken with this sumac onions and then sprinkle it with sort of buttery pine nuts and parsley and then you drizzle tahini over it. Because as with feta, everything is better drizzled with tahini. And then it's you have flatbread. <laughs> and it's I love eating with my hands and everyone kind of pulling. So so chicken dishes. There's chicken marbella in Simple, which we do a lot as, oh, a, yeah. as a family with a big oh, fat. Liv, you introduced me to chicken marbella. Yeah. I love chicken marbella. <laughs> you did a great recipe for that. The odd thing you didn't invent chicken marbella, but the, the, version, <laughs> the version in Simple with the kind of big fat dates and the massive green olives. And, and again, like someone who always cooks ahead of time like that dish you can it literally benefits from sitting around for a day before you put it in the oven and the way I cook at home is that I'm a real batch cooker so twice a week I'll cook for about kind of five hours and I'll I'll just make sort of a ton of things so the fridge almost looks like I'm a sort of short order chef which means meals can just happen instantly but it's all there there's just loads of condiments and pestos and baba ganoush and, and so I can just kind of reach for it and we've come a long way from the days when sun-dried tomatoes were pretty exotic. Obviously, <laughs> Ottolenghi recipes are known for their extensive ingredients list. Do you have a go-to place where you get your stuff from? Is your larder presumably very well stocked with all of the different spices? And- uh, the larder is all set. I love getting stuff from, there's a small company called Zaitun that does wonderful olive oil and za'atar from Palestine. They're a really, really great company. Sous Chef is really good for ingredients. The Oshlengi website can also get you some good uh, good <laughs> ingredients. And then I live in Clapham. We've got a lovely sort of green grocers for veggies and herbs and spices. So kind of sort of bits and bobs. And what is comfort food for you? Comfort food? Uh, well, the next Oshlengi book is called Comfort. So you can, uh, which is out next <laughs> September. So we spent a lot of time in the last couple of years thinking about comfort. And as with Simple, our big revelation or realisation is that comfort means different things to different people, which sounds obvious, but actually it is so interesting when some people absolutely take for granted that everyone's comfort food is kind of, you know, a jacket potato with hot baked beans and melted cheese. Like for some people, that's absolutely disgusting. That is not comfort food at all. And for other people, kind of chicken soup and noodles is comfort food, which is then very kind of challenging for someone else. So is it about texture or memory or is it the food we eat when no one's looking or is it the way we eat? So, sorry, I'm slightly reading my introduction to the comfort book to you now. But um, <laughs> for me, comfort food is, it's more a kind of way of eating rather than actual thing, sort of what I'm eating, which is just very much about feeling secure and relaxed with the people I'm with. It's very much a kind of bounty of food. I really don't like either serving or being served a kind of plate of food and then that's it. And then there's no other food around. I I only really feel comfortable at a table that has got enough food on it to feed about 20 people, how many people are there, so that everyone can just take what they want. And back to that sort of tea time thing of like autonomy and just being able to sort of help yourself to as much as you want. And then I guess it's kind of tactile texture food sort of eating hands or holding a hot bowl of soup and we've read that you're a big fan of baba ganoush which is probably not surprising given your work with otolenghi but i mean how often do you have baba ganoush and also what's the secret to 
good Baba Ganesh. I think my children actually think I'm a bit mad if they overheard me because I basically spend a lot of my time talking about aubergines and I think there might be something addictive in aubergines because yeah most mornings I'll wake up put the kettle on and then instinctively I will just put kind of three or four aubergines on the open flame on the grill so that's kind of the smell they're waking up to every morning is these very 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 charred aubergines and then I'll scoop out the flesh and then that flesh will just be used at some point that day. It'll just be chucked into a soup or kind of whizzed up with, you know, if it's baba ganoush, then it'll be sort of tahini and lemon juice and garlic. But actually at the moment I'm on a real kick of, rather than tahini, I'm adding it with um, yogurt and Dijon mustard and garlic and lemon juice and then chuck in a couple of anchovies. So I'm taking it down a kind of Caesar salad route. And then I've just got that and it's just delicious. It's a kind of almost like a sort of aubergine cream. And then I'd have it with, you know, chicken salad for lunch or it's just lovely on anything. So, yeah, this makes me sound like a plonker, so don't use it. But last Christmas, I got this thing from Ocado where I got this video. They did this kind of bespoke video where they put your ingredients of, of kind of, you had this bronze and silver and then gold plinth of your ingredients that you buy most of. And then this aubergine climbed onto this top, like, plinth. They're like, you're our number one aubergine buyer in South London. <laughs> and the kids are like, I'm oh, my God. Because, like, if I was going to have, like, three brands, two of them would be, like, Ocado and aubergines. And, and it was just, like, the best moment <laughs> of my life is, like, I am. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um. And to finish, tell us about your ultimate meal. We sometimes call it a desert island meal, but you're not provandering for yourself in a desert island. You have, the world is your oyster. What would you like as your, your ultimate meal? <laughs> so this is the dish I'm going to have before I go off to my desert island. So it's not... Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's a better way of framing it. This is it. your send-off, yeah. <laughs> so this is my send-off. So, um, so at the beginning of the meal, I'm going to have sort of all my buddies but at this stage there's going to be no kids around so like kids are just sort of not in the kitchen at this point everyone's just going to come for just a couple of martinis and then there's just going to be a spread of oysters and brassola and olives and anchovies and maybe a cheeky little bit of beef tartare or all the things that the kids kind of hate and are not interested in so we can actually have our big old kind of chit chats and a couple of martinis and then the kids can all appear because I, if it's my last meal, I need to kind of say goodbye to them. Otherwise, it's not very fair. So at that point, the food is going to be quite sort of family friendly. So maybe the chicken masakan or the chicken marbea that I've mentioned. And then just loads of dishes. Got some lovely kind of wedges of grilled aubergine with feta. There's a lovely baked rice in simple with kind of confit tomatoes and shallots. Just loads of things for everyone to kind of help themselves to. And then I think we have this lovely, I really like kind of salty puddings. There's a really lovely sweet and salty cheesecake in Otolenghi Simple where you make a cherry compote and then a hazelnut crumble. And again, such a theme for me, but people being able to kind of help themselves to as much as they want. So you can then have your sweet and salty cheesecake and then your crumble and your cherry compote and kind of make up your own bowl. Is that the one with feta in the yeah. cheesecake? Yeah, it's sort of feta. So good. I mean, it's so, so good. good. It's so good. <laughs> so that's delicious. Then maybe a tiny bit of super dark chocolate and possibly an espresso martini to, uh, to sort of thoroughly send me on my way. And then I would cycle off and let someone else do the washing up. What a perfect send off. <laughs> Sounds absolutely delicious. Well, Tara, thank you very much for joining Table Talk today. And Tara's new book, new first solo book, How to Butter Toast, is available now. Thanks, guys. 